listening to Hawks Insiders, home of quality analysis, special features, match recaps, interviews, and so much more. Follow us on Substack for extended coverage of all things brown and gold. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Golden Years Revisited. One of the first episodes we ever recorded was a chat with the great Johnny Barker. So ahead of this week's game against Port Adelaide, we take you back to the 2001 semi-final at the Old Footy Park and talk all things male planes, concussion, Adrian Cox, club hero status and much, much more. This one will make all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and who knows, might inspire the Hawks to another upset win over the power. So please enjoy one of our classic episodes with a Hawthorne icon. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 4 of the Golden Years podcast as we take you through some of the great days and great games of the Hawthorne Football Club. And this week it is one of the most remarkable and gutsy wins of all, the 2001 second semi-final against Port Adelaide. My name is Ashley Brown and our special guest will be the great Johnny Barker who was so heroic on that special night at the old footy park. But first, let me introduce you to my co-hosts, the Waldorf and Statler of Hawthorne fandom, Andrew Weiss and Darren Levine. G'day, Ash. G'day, Darren. Thanks again for having me here. Very exciting to go over this absolute thriller of a game. One of the great games. Now, just a quick reminder to listeners that this is not a podcast to talk about what's happening with the Hawks in 2020. That's what the hawthornefc.com.au website and the official Hawthorne app are for. And let's also give a quick shout out to our friends at the Hawk Talk podcast. We're here to turn back the pages of history, and that really does apply to this game, which was played on September 15, just four days after 9-11 shook the entire world. And some of the things that, uh, as we prepare for the podcast, you go back and uh, remember stuff, and we'll talk to Johnny in a sec, is I was watching Nick Holland on Talking Footy when the first reports came through. Hawthorne had just beaten, I think it was... Uh, Geelong or Bulldogs or someone in the qualifying final. John will tell us when he comes on. And then suddenly there's news of, of, of a plane crashing into a building in New York. I was more interested in what Nick Holland had to say about uh, the win the week before. So I remember that one. And 2001 was that season. Hawthorne won the first eight games, had a pretty good side. And then they had the Let's Get Loud game against Essendon at uh, the old Chelsea Dome when they played the Jennifer Lopez. Every time. Uh, every got, time got they kicked a goal. And ever since then, that song <laughs> Horrific. has given the irritants every time since. So it was a, a remarkable uh, remarkable season. Yeah, I um, my uh, my personal little point to, to the story of this game was that um, my mum had actually, in her wisdom, decided to... Um, have my 21st for family and for friends of the family that evening. So uh, all my mates travelled across to Adelaide for the game uh, and here was I with a couple of family family friends who were Hawk supporters with the TV on in the living room uh, just uh, having a few shandies with some of mum and dad's besties. <laughs> my recollection of that game, like all ho- uh, close Hawthorne games, is just being really, really nervous and Stuart Dew 
kicking that amazing goal and kind of wishing that we had a play with a raking left foot like that. Your your wish came true. Hawthorne lined up uh, that day. From the back line was Joel Smith, Jonathan Hay, Raiden Tallis. Half-back line was Chris Barlow, Trent Crowe, Angelo Lekas. The centre line, Stephen Green, Daniel Harford, Mark Graham. Half-forward line, Ben Dixon, Jade Rawlings and Johnny Barker. Forward line was Shane Crawford, Nathan Thompson, Richie Vandenberg, Sean Wren, Tony Woods and Daniel Chick were the followers. Daniel Chick was the rover, as named. Interchange, Adrian Cox, I'm going to ask Johnny about him, Nick Holland, Nathan Loney and Luke McCabe and the emergencies were Billy Nichols, Aaron Lord and Chris Obst. Interesting side, um, but a side that did a lot of great things that year. Um, and... Uh, before Johnny joins us to tell, talk through that fantastic night, let's have a listen to some of his last court heroics. Hawthorne, a big chance. The marker's dropped by Lekas. Lekas now on the lead is Barker. And Barker is marked in front of me. He's kicked an important goal already in this term. This one's drifting, or is it? Or is it through? They like it, Hawthorne. They're in front. Hay with him. Tread Ray and Hay. Tread Ray's left foot kick. Hawthorne have won it. Johnny Barker, welcome back to your old stamping ground. Not if you take the Carlton uh, polo shirt off <laughs> to join us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was one of the great. Uh, it was a great season and a remarkable game. Before we get into the game itself, it was a pretty good team. We talked before uh, you came on air. Hawthorne won the first eight games in two thousand one. You looked. You looked through the team as I read it out with a lot of interest. Why was Hawthorne such a good side in that year? Do you think? We'd come off a final series the year before and I think we were building really nicely. Um, even just looking at the team then, we had a really good mix of, of young talent, but gee, there's some there's some good experience at that point in time as well. Um, outstanding midfield, uh, handy back line and um, a reasonable forward line, I would say. I would say. <laughs> reasonable. It kind of coincided that the jump back to having a little bit of success and, and playing finals 2000, 2001 um, with probably your best seasons at the club and, and kicking bags of goals in, in both years. So uh, do you think that from a consistency point of view, yourself getting on the park, well, obviously we'll drill down into the game itself specifically shortly, but that, that helped contribute to the, the success after a few lean years? Yeah, I think I think a number of of the uh, I reckon the prime movers and, and our our bigger bigger guys, the fact that we were so healthy for those couple of years really helped, because the next couple of years, um, unfortunately, the likes of uh, um, Dutchy, Johnny Hay, Nathan Thompson missed really big chunks, and and they were just because they were so um, influential in the way we played. Those two years, I think you're right. I think it um, it impacted our ability to play good footy. Guys like Jade Rawlings were at his peak then. Johnny Hay was at least All-Australian fullback then. Joel Smith was an All-Australian Absolutely. around the time. Shane Crawford, well, he was two years off winning a Brownlow. Um, we brought Sean Wren yeah, in. brought Wren, who did a new lease of life that year at Hawthorne. You just seem to have a lot of players at the you know, 25, 26 just at their peak times. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And and unfortunately for, for the team's sake, I thought we were building really nicely and we just lost so many of those tall pillars especially over the next couple of years, um, which was disappointing because it, it just felt like we were on the verge. So let's talk about uh, – let's get into the game. So 
The lead up to the game was he beat the Bulldogs in the final a week before. Um, I think that was an elimination final. He'd stumbled a bit towards the second half of the season. Um, who, who did we beat? The, I, I don't think it was the Bulldogs. Was it the Bulldogs? I've got a feeling it might have been... It was either Sydney. Yeah, Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. I make a mistake. It was Sydney at... At, 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 Mar- at Eddie Marvel, Hatt Stadium. Right. And yeah. we... I, th- I think we were scoreless in the first quarter and ended up beating them by about 50-odd points. Steamrolled them. Yeah. All right. So we're being told that, uh, yeah, well, it was Sydney, my bad. So then 9-11 happens, <coughs> and that turned the whole world upside down. My recollection is of a couple of things that game is that an ANSET had gone by that stage as well. So ANSET was the league sponsored and taking all the plans, and that they'd gone uh, belly up as well. So I don't think ANSET were flying. So my recollection is that did you go that did you go over on a cargo plane or something like that? We did. We went over a po- on a postal plane, I believe it was. We we all um, and we got on that at the Essendon Airport. So it was a, it was a new experience for all <laughs> for all of us. And we were sitting there. Um, just a long row on the on the plane. One side was a row of players and staff, and the other side was a row of players and staff. And it honestly reminded me of, you know, the the movies where you see the guys pulling out of those army <laughs> army planes. Um, but it, you know, Swabby used it well in you know from an army theme point of view. We're, we're going over to get a job done, and um, you know, it's it it, it ended up being okay for us you know we were, we were sort of up against the odds I think Port might have finished first that year and um, they were pretty keen not to go out in straight sets um, and we were pretty keen to go over and get it done and the other part of it Daniel Chick's wife was American but did, was there also a 9-11 connection as well or was it just that she was American therefore and it was footy therefore the whole you know that story was lumped together do you remember anything my recollection is there was a family member that was involved yeah wow. of um, Chicky's missus and um it's funny, my wife, uh, who I'd only just started seeing at that point in time, it's, it's a, like it was a wonderful year for me because I'm, I'm married to her now and uh, she was a Qantas flight attendant. She couldn't get over for the game, um, but she had a pilot who was a friend who sat her in the cockpit <laughs> to get her over for the game. My little brother and a whole heap of his mates jumped in a car and drove across to the game. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a big week given the, the 9-11 situation as well. Yeah, I'm wondering how those world events kind of um, affected the focus going into that game. Was it was it hard to to kind of focus on the task? It it, it was oh, initially it was a, it was a real shock. I think to most people, uh, I woke up the morning of nine um, eleven and I was uh, I got a phone call. I was doing an interview with Kevin Bartlett on um, I, I think it was SEN. That's nine two seven or whatever. Nine two seven, one of the radio stations and. And he's sitting there talking about 9-11 and, and trying to mesh in a little bit of talk about, about football, but it was just it were, like it was just a weird situation. It was pretty surreal. So, um, yeah, it was – and I think we had a, um, a minute of silence at the start of the game too, um, out of respect. Yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a – it was a different lead-in, that's for sure. And so with the lead-in, um, obviously now we look back look back at history and and we've won we're the the second team the second victorian team to win an interstate final so up against it heading over there hawthorne 91 against west coast being the only previous team to have won interstate was that addressed or discussed or from a mental approach heading interstate for a final was that touched on at all in the lead up not that i can um not that i can recall 
Not that I can recall. I think Swabby was a um, super coach in terms of uh, talking about positives and 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 talking about players' abilities versus versus the opposite. I, I, think, I almost think from a connection point of view, he was he was a super coach in that way. Um, so I, I do remember um, a lot of talk from Swabby around what we can do and what we have done and what we've been able to do previously with some of the better teams in the comp that year and also what we've been able to do um, with Port Adelaide in patches. Um, I'm not sure whether we had beaten Port Adelaide that year or not, but he, he, he I remember him touching on, on parts of play and, and the way we'd gone about going very well against them in, in pieces. So let's talk about the game. So quarter time, it's 3-1 to 1-1. One, one. You're two goals behind. Half time, you're actually in front. And if you watch the highlights, on, on, as we've seen on YouTube, there was some good foot in the second quarter. But the third quarter, they kicked 4-2 to 1-2. So three-quarter time, it's 8-7-55 to 4-6-30. So you're behind at three-quarter... Oh, so 5-8-38. So you're behind by three goals on the road at three-quarter time of an interstate final. What are your recollections of what the mood was like in the group? And we'd only kicked four to that point in time. Yeah. And they ported kicked the last four heading into three-quarter time. So they were on an absolute roll going into that 17-point deficit at three-quarter time. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, was, I was lucky in the first quarter, not lucky, but in the first quarter I had some sort of concussion. and um, um, So I can't really remember too much of that. And I obviously wasn't too concerned about the deficit at that point in time when I went back out. But um, I can't remember much around um, the conversations or, or the theming that was going on from the coaching point of view. Um, all I know is that we just chipped away that whole that whole quarter. Uh, um, what was the... Well, how many did Port kick in the last? They kicked 2-2 uh, two, two and Hawthorne kicked 5-4. Well, that's a big last quarter. <laughs> which were... Tom- Nathan Thompson scored the first two goals, which were his... his- First two goals for the game. Uh, I think we had a half a snap in between. Yep. Uh, you, you hopefully weren't too concussed to remember your goal from the John Barker pocket, yeah. <laughs> as we uh, affectionately called it for a while, um, which was a super kick, yeah. super kick from out on the boundary. There's not too, not too many goals that get kicked from there. I think I was. I think I was lucky. A lot of um, South Australian Hawthorne supporters have talked to me <laughs> about the fact that it's just impossible to kick goals from there. But that's mainly because the breeze comes that way, and on that night it was very still. So I think um, luck was on my side at that at that point in time. But you were a good kick for goal. You were at your best. You were a very reliable kick. Yeah, and that that side favoured me because um, I, I've got a natural left to right curve, and um, so that that all set it up well. And um, um, there's still some coaches and players that tease me about the fact that the ball, when I kick the ball, might over 50 metres only spin once. <laughs> so it, it, it almost floats through the air. So it's, uh, look up, it's great memories. And and from a Hawthorne point of view, so many people come and, not many people recognise me these days, but um, the Hawthorne people that do affectionately talk about that game and those goals. And so then after that goal on the siren, um, Stuart Dewey scores. Uh, it's a, Darren mentioned Very it before. Hot. It's almost a flash forward to 2008. His uh, beautiful raking left from about 48. Um, and we get a, sca- a, a snap from Harford straight in front. And then I think the play, which we heard the audio from, 
uh, Mark Graham, who had an absolute blinder, and we'll talk about him shortly, uh, to Lekas, who drops the mark, picks it up, kicks, kicks it to your lace out. Mm. So you're 45, 48 out on a 45-degree angle. Uh, what's going through oh, your car, so, uh, What's going through your mind? I don't know. You'd have to talk to the doctor too. Bernie Crimmins at the point in time. So I'm not sure exactly um, what was in what he gave me at, at um, half time, but uh, I think I was feeling pretty good, and I don't think there was too many concerns on, on my mind at that point in time. I, I mean, and a lot of people talk about the kick from the boundary, but for me that was the harder harder kick because we were behind and that and there was an expectation to kick that one. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I personally think that was a better kick um, and it was from a fair, fair way further out. Uh, and obviously I, I've seen seen the replay and um, my reaction's a little bit understated, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Considering... Shut where uh, you are. Where yeah. Are, yeah, possibly, <laughs> how possibly. Ba- how bad were those migraines that you were suffering? Though? I think... You were off the ground for a couple quarters. Yeah, so I, I, I've got little bits and pieces of um, things I can remember from that game. One is the old trainer Kenny Goddard holding me up in the shower while I was um, nauseous, and and I had some some issues with being able to say I was a little bit um, um, had some blurred vision, and that that started after a knock in the first quarter. So. Bernie Crimmins was awesome. The doc, he came out late in the first quarter and then, um, you know, they grabbed me and took me off the ground and um, I spent a bit of time um, down in the change rooms um, um, being sick and um, I think someone, and I don't know how true this is, said that Ian Dicker, the president at half time, I was in the medical room on one of the beds and... uh, Someone said he was massaging my temples. Now, I'm not, <laughs> that is right. I'm not, we know I'm not, how much you love the players. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if someone's uh, taking the mickey out of me or, or whether that tr- actually happened, but um, that might have been the cure. I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> Magic sure. fingers are being thicker. Um, so we want to talk about a couple of players. I mean, we'll talk about the after the game. But a couple of players, absolutely. Mark Graham, who a lot of Hawthorne people think is underrated, by people outside footy. Absolutely. As he, he was an intercept, almost an intercept. He played the intercept marking role that is compulsory and mandatory in a team now. It is. Not so much then, but he, and his intercept marking this night was magnificent. He, he had the most number of possessions on the ground with 24. He took 12 marks and was just everywhere. He's super, and, and he's he's quick. He's he's one of the quickest players I've played with, at, you know, over 6'2", 6'3". And... Um, from vision I've seen of the game, you see him take that mark to stop basically their final 4A forward. And so, and he was very quick to put the hand up, <laughs> put the stop sign up and, and let everyone know that we're slowing down from there. So he's a good thinker as a player, super quick. And um, gee, he was, he was mighty on that night. I was going to ask, um, those final few minutes were really frantic. Who were the cool heads in the team? I saw Sean Wren put up a couple of fingers to indicate the time as well. Yeah, Sean Wren, smart uh, football brain. Angelo Leck, a super football brain. And, and such a um, such a skillful player. He uh, It's funny, that last play that, that, um, that he dropped, the ball that came out of the stoppage, he was standing in the middle of the ground by himself. Yeah. While that stoppage unfurled, now 
I would have hated to have been in the Port Adelaide camp doing the review on that game, seeing that um, um, play out, given that, that that was a final play that, that cost them the game. So it must, be a, break, gone... must be a breakdown somewhere in there. Even in 2001, footy's a little bit more basic, but it must end a breakdown yeah, in and, their and, stoppage structure. And Well, yeah, exactly right. And, and what it what it talked to was their ability for their defensive six or someone behind the play to be able to see that and, and, and alert someone to, to the um, seriousness of having someone of his capability standing in the middle of the ground by himself. I think we can blame Wakelin because he, he went forward and kicked a goal in that <laughs> quarter, which I don't think he would have scored too many in his career. And uh, well, Because we can. Let's just lay the blame on him. <laughs> I'll keep, I'll keep you out of that conversation. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a couple of times I want to ask you about Johnny Hay was at his peak then, he, and he was a prototype. I mean, now a fit Johnny Hay now would be a super footballer, no doubt. athletic, no doubt. Could read the back, he'd back himself in, take the mark, take off, and and do things. He was just one for play around that sort of two thousand two thousand one period. Super strong, quick, um, take an intercept mark, uh, use the ball okay. Um, um, it was funny, like guys like Mark Graham, Trent Crow, Johnny Hay, the speed, they, they were six foot four guys, six foot five guys that were just so quick. Um, so their ability to close down opponents was was extraordinary. I didn't like playing on those guys at, at training at all. And um, Daniel Chick's another one who, last couple of years at Hawthorne, and I reckon 2001 probably his best, around his best time at Hawthorne as well. Yeah, he's, he was a super player. His, his ability to pressure in the forward line um, was outstanding. Him, Benny Dixon. Um, I try to throw myself into that mix in terms of that pressure mix, but I, <laughs> I probably wasn't quite as efficient as hunting down the opposition as those two guys. I want to give a shout-out here to um, Joel Smith, who won a very crucial uh, one-on-one in the, in the dying minutes as well. Yeah. How good was he in those situations and such an underrated player, I think? Yeah, he was super. And at the start of that preseason, he, he'd come back off, off an ACL. He'd just been traded from St Kilda. And he, um, he wrote a letter to the, to the playing group and handed it. I think he handed it to everyone or put it in everyone's locker. Um, and it was, it was a letter of commitment to what he was going to stand for for that year. And it was super impressive. And then he went about acting on it. Mm. So there's a lot of talk in football. Mm. He actually uh, he put words to paper and then he went, went about delivering on it. So, um, yeah, super respect for him. And he, and he was another halfback who was super quick, um, very good ball user, overlapped through the middle. And, you know, he, he was an 80, 90-metre player because he'd, he'd run and bounce for 30 and then, and then he'd deliver well. And a Crimmins medalist, one of best and fairest at the club. So... Yeah. yeah, I think it was that year. I think it was that 2001. year. 2001. Well. Adrian Cox was a cult figure. <laughs> Give us a bit of insight into people, supporters either loved him or didn't. Oh, well, look, my, I'm not. Geez, I wonder if I can, I'm allowed to say this, but I, I'm not. My favourite story about Adrian Cox was Swabby said one day, and um, righto, guys, who can honestly put their hand up and say um, that they are 100% committed? to being the best footballer they can be. You know, there's the the usual suspects put their hand up, Croft, and I could tell you a lot of stories about Croft where he overtrained, but, and then um, there might have been one or two more, and then Coxie put his hand up. 
And so we've been having conversations with Coxie about giving up smoking as, <laughs> as an AFL player. At half time or... <laughs> um, and the funny thing was, he, he, he said, now, Coxie, you've told me you've given up smoking. He goes, yeah, I have. And he said, okay, well, when was your last smoke? Because you're telling me you, you're giving absolutely everything that you can to being a professional footballer. When was your last smoke? He goes, oh, about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was, and, he, and he, he had tried. So he was cutting He was cutting back and, you know, he'd have a couple of days off him and then he, he couldn't sort of stand it. And um, he was just one of those guys that was just a, he was a very good footballer, but um, the professionalism, the, the way in which you had to prepare for a game and, um, the requirements from a from a conditioning point of view just were growing and growing, and it just made it hard not to be a super professional. We did a podcast with Campbell Brown last week about the <laughs> t- t- 2004 Lions Sand game. We talked a bit about Schwabby, and it was a really bad year for the footy club. And that, and that year they were a long way off it. But 2001 to win those first eight games, and <clears> for a lot of the year be a premiership threat. Schwabby deserves a lot of the credit for that. What sort of coach was Schwabby, particularly in that early time? Because he obviously made a hu- had a huge impact on the group. And also, does Ken Judge get some credit for the spade work he did for Schwabby? Yeah, look, I, I, both those guys had, had super strengths that were different. Um, Judgy, Judgy tactically really thought a lot about football. Schwabby was a super connector with people. Um, and, and as a coach, I, I'm, you know, He's as good as a coach as I've had as someone who will connect with you and and um, um, make you feel um, like he rates you. And and the funny thing is with with AFL players, their ability to believe in themselves um, um, is a product of their own feelings, but also the people around them around them that are influential on them. Um, and Swabby was super at allowing players to feel good about themselves. And it's one of the, uh, like you said, it's one of the reasons why we were so good through that period. Did you see a lot of that at other, obviously being at multiple clubs, um, today's very different in terms of emotionally and psychologically what players are going through. Yep. Um, obviously, you rate Schwabby in that regard. Did you see much of it in your time through your football career? I've got to tell you, um, it's one of the big reasons why well, it's one of the variables why players aren't in as good a headspace now is you've got your social media concerns you've got the pressure from mainstream media um, but you've also got the environment that you create as a head coach in a football department and you know, I have seen environments that haven't been um, effective in that manner and he was that was his absolute one word. He was almost ahead of his time from an emotional intelligence point of view. Um, and, and as I said, one of the variables that really hurt Swabby was the fact that he had so many good players that were just unavailable. And, and we had a real string for a couple of years there of, of some of the um, higher-end players just not being able to get on the park. And so... Just to come back to this game, let, let's get back to the, the poor game. I've got, um, we've got a question, um, well, Ian Bellett, uh, following the, the pod on, on Facebook, actually nominated this as the game he would most like to hear about. And he actually put forward a question to, to ask you, Johnny, whether or not you consider this to be one of the best games that, that you've played in and, and where does it rank? Yeah, this is absolutely one of the best games I've played in. Um, it's probably not the best individual game that I've played as a player, but 
I only played half of it, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if I doubled it down, yeah, exactly. maybe. You did win it off your own boot. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I don't know about that. Tomo kicked the, it's, it's funny, Tomo kicked the first two goals in the last quarter to, yeah. to get us back in. Who, which one? Which ones are more important? I feel like I've, I've got the dream run here <laughs> on the back of um, some, some other guys' hard work. Uh, but yeah, in my, that was, um, it's probably the, my favourite game. Um, to be a part of at the Hawthorne Football Club without doubt in, in my career. And, and it's funny because that was almost the greatest football day of my life. And the week later was almost the worst. Well, we we do want to, we're not going to let you go without talking a little bit about the next week while well, we've got you in the room. Uh, not worthy of a podcast of the time, but uh, while well, we've got you, what was it like? What were the celebrations like? I mean, you're a fantastic a win for the ages and one of the great wins in the history of the club. Um, you've got a preliminary final to play, and then all the stuff going on outside footy. Was it a? How was it? What was it like after the game? Uh, after the game, the doctors gave me s- some more medication, and and my wife and Daniel Chick's wife actually took me back to the hotel. So I didn't I didn't go back to the hotel with the playing group because they it was going to take a while for them to get out of the stadium. Um, and they'd given me some sort of sedative, so I I, I left. Um, before they kicked in and tried to get back to the hotel before they kicked in and and um so uh, i couldn 't tell you <laughs> to, to be honest i 'd love to be able to answer answer that one but um uh, did we celebrate too hard I, I, look i don 't think so i don 't think so we we were we were really prepared for for Essendon, our arch nemesis <laughs> Now, yeah, what, what, what do you think that game did for the... I can't let you leave here without mentioning the, the word cult. What did that do for the cult of John Barker? Yeah, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. I, it, that might be the reason. There's not a lot of people that recognise me now, and um, not that there was ever many that did, mainly Hawthorne supporters. Yeah. Um, but I must say, whenever Hawthorne supporters stop me, they, they do generally ask about the Port Adelaide game and... Um, and it always gives me fond memories. I, I'm, you know, I'm keen to put, I'm keen to roll out the tape. I've got three kids now. And I'm keen to roll out the tape at some stage, and <laughs> just, just when I feel like they're off me, and, and give them a look. And I think we're under. I think we've just brushed over that too quickly because the cult status at the club in the outer for John Barker, the footballer, the banners. The I, I remember the last game. I I gone from up top at Eddie had down to the pocket where the banners and all all the fans were seeing you off the ground and there's there are John Barker songs like we're talking like Premier League football here over in Europe you know Johnny Barker walks on water people singing it in groups I've never seen that for another football player does that this game is potentially the pinnacle did that did, did you recognise that at the time or in the aftermath and how does that sit with you? I, I more recognise that in the aftermath and, you know, it's, it's, it's all the good stuff about my career but also, um, so, you know, some of the stuff that I don't look on as fondly which is my next part of my career which wasn't, you know, a great, a great period in time given my um, 
issues in my body. But that Johnny Barker Walks on Water song, oh, the only version I used to hear was Campbell Brown singing, singing it to me <laughs> saying, Johnny Barker Walks on Water, tears a hamstring every quarter. That, so that's the version I, that's the right. version I, I got to listen to for the, right. next, for the next three or four years. I, I remember doing some 150s with him at Glen Ferry when we were training couple of years later when I was trying to get my body right again and um, I tweaked a quad and and he, he found that funny because he's like, <laughs> you know, Johnny, you, you cannot keep up with a ballistic animal like me and he's a cheeky little bugger but um, yeah, look, to your, yeah, to your point around the cold stuff, I, it, it was just, it flattened me out a bit that I couldn't um, sustain that and that I had some issues with the body and, and couldn't quite get back to that same level of, of performance couple more before you go. So the next week, you lose to Western and you say you went from the high to the low. It's a, it's a game that makes most Hawthorns people blood boil after mm. 19 years. What is it about that game that makes it, apart from the fact that they lost lost to Essendon, just talk us through that game. Well, everybody that talks to me talks about um, the free kicks against... Um, what was that guy? What was the umpire's name? Darren Goldsby. <laughs> yeah, we know it. <laughs> He'd give you his number and address. Oh, and... What a what a spud. Um, <laughs> honestly, and but taking all of that into consideration, it was a tough day. I, I took the top off my talus bone in the in the first quarter and had to sit there and watch it on the bench, and it was like chewing through glass. Um, couldn't stand Essendon. Um, Wanted so bad to be out there and 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 to be helping and uh, Dicko hurt his ankle as well. Um, but it, pretty brave effort in a lot of ways to come back. Because in spite of the fact they got a bit of help from the umpires, they, they looked in control at half time. Yeah. And again, Hawthorne came back and played really stirring second half. It was outstanding by by the player. There was no doubt the group was. So we were down a couple of players on the bench from a rotation point of view. Um, so to be able to dig in and, and find a way to get back into the game and nearly almost snatch it was um, was a credit to the group. There's no doubt about that. It was 23 to 15, the freeze in that, in that game, by the way. So justifiably, that angst yeah. can, can go on. Could you have knocked over Brisbane the next week? Absolutely, we were very we were very good against Brisbane, even on their home deck. That, that, that two years, two thousand, two thousand one. Don't um, tell us that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> another one that got away. Yeah, um, I want to ask you before you go and let you go. And thanks for coming in. Um, like your last couple of years at Hawthorne were the first couple of years of Joe Ruffhead and Lance Franklin, and you had a mentoring role with them to a degree. You know, on the field, and we might understand a bit off the field as well. Um, you must take enormous, and you know you've largely been involved in other clubs since then. You were here back for a couple of years. You must take enormous pride at, at their careers and what they've done with their football, given your association with them back in the early days. Yeah, look, I do, um, and that was one of the things that kicked off my coaching career. Really, I, I, I was struggling to get on the park. Clarko could see that, being the you know super um, coach he is, and he said, "Look." You might not be able to have the impact on the field, but you've got Timmy Boyle, you've got Lance Franklin, you've got Jared Ruffhead. Start to start to help them. And and the buzz you get out of that is um, significant because at, at the end of my career, um, I've been working at HSBC, uh, one of the sponsors here, um, in a, on a part-time basis. And one of the guys I was working with there offered me a job at uh, another bank, uh, when I retired, 
And then Ross Lyon offered me a job at St Kilda. Um, and I was like, what do I do? You know, do I, do I suit up and head into town or do I keep um, staying in this game that I love? And I think what tipped it over the edge was the, that last couple of years of the, the buzz you get from helping people um, and, and, and seeing a growth because Buddy and Ruffy, they came on so quick. Now, I don't think I really had much to, much to do with Rubbish. it. Rubbish. You uh, should be taking all the credit <laughs> you can right now. Yeah, well, well <laughs> Buddy kicks right to left on his left foot and I kick left to right uh-huh. on my right foot. And I just said, look, I just I taught him how to drop it on the instep and um, he probably won't agree with me. But, uh, um, yeah, look, it was that, that was one way that I, I felt um, I still connected to the group in that last couple of years. You've been a couple long time in various roles, um, but you come back here today, and we really appreciate you coming back. When you walk through the doors of Hawthorne, even several years removed, how do you feel? Uh, well, it's, it still feels like um, like my club. I think I think when you when you you know, when you bleed and sweat and and you um, work hard for for an establishment, I think you're always going to be connected. Um, the suffering you do as a player, <laughs> especially through pre-seasons, um, is significant. And so, yeah, I, you know, I've got obviously nothing but love for the for the Hawthorne Football Club. And it's funny, I, I, you know, I had a poker night a couple of years ago and um, Hodgie was sitting there and he asked my son, who was about four or five at the time, who are you going to play with when you grow up? And Max said, I'm playing for Carlton. Like this, <laughs> and Hodgie reached over and grabbed him by the throat <laughs> and said, "You're playing for Hawthorne." It's good you say that because yeah. I'm very worried that uh, the longer Hodgie lives in uh, Brisbane, that uh, one of his boys is going to want to play for Brisbane. Well, he's enjoying it up there. He I is. know that <laughs> the lines of Academy will get greedy claws onto him. So yeah. uh, just remind Hodgie that story in a couple of years' time when Cooper's yeah. of an age. So. Don't worry, my sons are reminded of the fact that he decided not to play for Hawthorne towards the end of his career. So, anyway. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for coming in. It was a... Pleasure. It was a wonderful night for the Hawks, and we loved watching you play. You didn't play quite enough footy. You would, We didn't see you play quite enough because of the injuries towards the end, but uh, all Hawthorne supporters love you, and uh, we thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. So that's a great Johnny Barker, and everyone who meets him just routinely says he's just a... Fabulous bloke, and I think the uh, the time he gave us just now uh, proves that. Uh, that game, you've got all the, the stat. You're our stats man as well, Andrew. What, what are the st- key stats? Yeah, I think we, we mentioned um, we mentioned Graham's contribution with the 24 possessions. He was the leading possession getter on the ground and the 12 marks. Uh, Croft with 22, uh, Vanders and Woods with 20 apiece. Uh, interestingly, we were talking about you talked about Chicky's one percenters. Um, he had the most tackles on the ground and the most one percenters as well. Uh, and obviously, major goal scorers were two apiece to Barker and Thompson, all at the right end of right end of proceedings. Got any stats for Coxie there? Or? Uh, I think he had a quite. And I but I tell you, he had he, instrumental 12, 12, in 12 kicks quarter. and uh, 12 kicks, three marks, three handballs, and a behind. He and was. Two he, he was the first person to get to Barker mm-hmm. when he kicked the match-winning goal, and he is in the vision 
when the final siren goes. So he had his mug in the right spots at the right, time. At the right time. And the final score, just for the record, was uh, Hawthorne 10 12 72 to Port Adelaide 10 9 69. Interesting, we had, we had Sean Burgoyne mentioned this in our first podcast that Port had the, you know, the, didn't, he'd been through the experience of Port Adelaide where they'd finished top three times for only one flag. This was the first of three years in which they finished either first or second on the ladder and didn't even make a grand final. So this was the start of the rot for, for Port Adelaide and that's why they were under enormous pressure going to the 2004 Premiership. And people were shell-shocked after this game. The Port had been a pretty good team all year. Hawthorne had fallen off the cliff a bit in the second half of the season um, after that great start and were the rank outsiders. I mean, with all that was going on, to go there and beat Port Adelaide as they did was just a, a mighty win. Absolutely. I think that classic line from the commentary about it being a win, win against all odds, so that really cements how big that win was. And you had a thought on uh, the Johnny Barker cult status, Darren? Oh, well, I think it's uh, a bit Matt Spanger-esque in, in a way. And I think a lot of the young supporters will probably... Uh, We'll, we'll probably uh, connect with that. That's right. Uh, well, he, had, he had a longer career at Hawthorne than uh, Matt Spanger did. And if you want to know how popular John Barker was, if you can dig out a video or go through your records of the last round of 2006 when he played his last game against Geelong at uh, what was then Telstra Dome or Colonial Stadium, whatever it was, he was... Um, he was the, the, there were players... The announcer was going to be his retirement game, his last game, and Alistair had to drop someone to pick him. And Alistair Clarkson had a queue outside his door before the game that week of players saying, "I'll gladly not play, in order to if I'm the one for Johnny to play his last game. I'm I'm happy, happy to be it." And uh, he kicked a goal at one stage, and the supporters are going mad, and the Clarkson's clapping away in the coach's box. It was really special scenes. It shows what he meant to the club and to the playing group. Yeah, I think in the thirty to forty minutes of this discussion, you know, the talk of getting him to mentor other players, the just talking to him before the, you know before we went to air and and after before we've recorded this stories like that he, you know he's a good bloke he's just one of the good guys and uh, i think that cult status will go down in history at our club and, and absolutely. he does work for Carlton. Yeah, yeah and just kind of nailing those two set shots after being nauseous in the in the rooms and uh, having double vision that's just incredible yeah very heroic he does work for Carlson, but clearly he said it himself. Like he feels like he's at home when he comes back through these doors, and he can he can go to any of the clubs that he wants in a professional capacity as as long as he comes back home at the end of it. As most of them do. So that's been uh, the podcast for this week, uh, Andrew. Where do we find your best work? You can find me on Twitter, Weesey09, or via My Sport Live. You can find me on Twitter too at uh, Darren underscore Levine, L-E-V-I-N. I am on Twitter at Hash Brown. That's Hash with an H and Brown with an E. And you can find me in the weekly AFL record and online at sen.com.au. Our next podcast, we're going a bit further back in time to a really emotional period in the history of the football club. It's the Crimos Cup, the 1976 Grand Final. And the oracle on that game, as well as one of the great players on the day, is... Peter Knights, and he'll be joining us to take us through a really uh, intriguing time in the history of the footy club. So until then, any last words, gentlemen? No, just... uh, Tell your friends. As as always, enjoying reliving these wonderful moments. To all of our listeners out there, thank you. Make sure you keep in touch with us on on social media, uh, Hawk. On the, through the Hawthorne website and through the Golden Years podcast uh, Facebook group set up by the website. We want to hear what games people want to see. We want to hear who we should be talking to. We want questions thrown at us because we're, we're bringing it 
we're bringing it to you guys as much as it is for us. Yeah, and I'd love to see a poll on who's the, the ultimate cult hero of the Hawks, Spanger or Barker. So we might get that set up. We'll get, we'll get that one set up, I think, on the socials. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Hawks Insiders. Head to our Substack for more quality analysis, special features, news, interviews, and so much more.